Please turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 18. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. This is Paul writing from prison to the Philippian church. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So this is the second sermon in our Impossible Life series, and the series is about the impossible life which God makes it possible for us to live. And today we're coming to the subject of joy. It says in Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that a staggering scripture? The thought that God would rejoice over you and I, with singing. We often think that God wouldn't do that, and yet we do it with our own children, don't we? We take delight in our own children, we rejoice in them. And this scripture tells us that God rejoices in us. And that means that God has a capacity for enjoyment, for joy. Which also implies that so do we. Because if we're created in the image of God, then just as God is able to enjoy things, so we are able to enjoy things as well. We get to enjoy a tremendous range of things. I mean, if you think about it, all the way from, from gardening to eating. I mean, if you, you take a motor car, when a motor car is getting fuel put into it, it doesn't experience any feelings. <laughs> Only the driver does. <laughs> Great joy and exaltation. But when we fuel up, when we're getting fueled up, when we're eating, we experience great delight and joy a lot of the time. We really enjoy our eating. So I wonder why it is then that Christians can't really figure out how joy fits into their faith. Because I'm sure as you're sitting there in the midst of the trials that we're all facing, you're thinking to yourself, oh my word, here we go. Ian's going to be talking about joy. <laughs> joy. How can, we, how can we experience joy in these circumstances? So the way that I'd like to handle this this morning, the subject, is, is to answer four questions. First of all, what is joy? Is it important? How do we rejoice? And what do we rejoice in? And those last two questions mesh very closely together, so I'll answer them at the same time. So the first one, what is joy? 
Joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Here are some other words that have a similar meaning. Delight, bliss, cheer, satisfaction. So if I enjoy watching rugby, then I experience feelings of great pleasure and happiness when I'm watching rugby. And there are any number of things that we can enjoy, ranging, as I've said, all the way from things like fishing, gardening, even cross-stitch. Some people really enjoy cross-stitch. I've never really figured that one out. We enjoy sex. We enjoy eating. Um, And the interesting thing is that our experience of joy can come in two different ways. Um, It can either come in sequence with sorrow, one after the other. So, for example, in Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So there's a sequential experience of joy, uh, sorrow, and then joy. But sometimes our experience of joy can come in parallel with sorrow. And that means to say that we can experience both of those things simultaneously. And we're going to see later on, using the example of Paul and Christ, how you can be going through something that is really terrible, a terrible experience, and yet in the midst of it, you can be experiencing joy. Why is it important that we experience that joy and that pleasure? Well, there isn't time to go into it now, but the Bible makes it clear that the overarching purpose of man is to glorify God, to make God look great, to declare the fame of God, if you like. And just to summarize that, to show that there is a lot of basis for this, there was a group of theologians called the Westminster Assembly, uh, English and Scottish theologians. They got together in 1646, and they spent almost a whole year making a summary of, of the fundamental Christian beliefs, which could be used for teaching purposes. So they went to the Bible, they, they distilled out of it the fundamental Christian beliefs, and then they put it together so that they could teach belief to ordinary people who didn't necessarily have a Bible. And they produced what's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a series of questions and answers, and then the answers have a proof text next to them to show that the answers are correct according to the Bible. And so there's the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. (laughs) What is the chief end or the purpose of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God. But notice the second phrase, and to enjoy him forever. These theologians recognized that there was a link between this most important purpose of man, which is to make God look amazing, and joy. And so, what is the link? And I think nobody's done a better job of explaining this if you ever want to do more reading into the subject than John Piper. And it's through his exposition of the passage that we read a little bit earlier. So let's have a look at it. Paul's greatest desire was that Christ would be exalted or made big in his body, whether by life or by death. And I think that we can understand the concept of making God look great through our lives. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink... Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Your entire life should make God look amazing. And I think we get this. Generally, as Christians, we get this. We know that whatever it is that we're doing, 
whether we're working, whether we're spending time with friends, we're always wanting to reflect God in a good light. We want Him to be glorified in our lives. But how do we make God look amazing by our death? Because that's what Paul's saying there, isn't it? He says um, that, that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's read on to verse 22. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Then verse 21, for to me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So that verse 21 begins with the word for, and in this case we could substitute the word because. So what he's saying is, Christ will be glorified in my life because I live for Christ. Okay, we get that. Or, Christ will be glorified in my death because to die is gain. Why do you think that Paul believes that dying would be an advantage for him? Verse 22. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So Paul would far prefer death to life because death means going to be with Christ. But how would that lead to a God-glorifying death, the process of dying? How would that process be glorifying if that were the case? And remember that I said that if I enjoy something, I experience feelings of great pleasure and happiness when I'm doing it. So in a sense, the thing that we enjoy rewards us with those feelings. And that's one of the reasons why we keep on doing it. And there's a significant truth in that. We value or treasure things that reward us. Now imagine that Christ has become your greatest treasure in life because of the joy that you experience from living in step with him. Imagine that the joy you get from Christ far surpasses the reward you get from anything else. In fact, you treasure and enjoy Christ so much that you get frustrated by the fact that you don't see him face to face. Wouldn't that change your view of death? Wouldn't that change the way that you died? You wouldn't be fighting and holding on to life at any cost in order to keep enjoying the things that you value in your life. Why? Because you'd be looking forward to seeing the person who you valued much more than anything else in your life. The one who gave you the greatest joy and satisfaction in life. There would be nothing that you valued more than Christ to keep you on earth. And wouldn't that show Christ to be an all-surpassing treasure? Wouldn't that glorify Him? So the more you enjoy Christ, the more you value Him, the more He satisfies you, the more He will be glorified in your life, or as we've argued now, in your death. Which means that we could say, in the same words as John Piper, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him. So can you see then that joy is of the greatest importance? Because if, God is our, if Christ is our satisfaction, if He's the one who gives us the greatest amount of joy, then it means that in our life or in our dying, we're going to be glorifying God to an amazing degree. I'd like to further emphasize this truth 
to show you just how vitally important joy is in a number of other aspects of the Christian life. First of all, conversion. Jesus used this parable to describe conversion. In those days, if your country was being invaded by an enemy, the best thing that you could do with your valuables was to go and bury them in a field for safekeeping. They weren't deposit boxes and banks. You couldn't wire it out of the country. You just went and found a secret place and you buried all your treasure. But sometimes the owner of the treasure and the family would be slaughtered, leaving that treasure permanently hidden. So in Jesus' parable, a man finds a treasure like that, but he, he can only lay claim to it according to the law of the time if he buys the field. And so he does a little bit of an audit and he weighs up. This is what it's going to cost to buy the field. This is what I'm going to have to sell, everything, compared to what I gain, the treasure which is in the field. And it says that in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. So when we get converted, we discover something, folks, that is beyond value. And it can't be a cold, emotionless audit. <laughs> we, we need to have the sense of joy at what we have discovered. Does it mean that the Christian life isn't about sacrifice? That it isn't about dedication and duty? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that, mean that because this man gave up everything for the treasure. It just means that the delight that we get from the treasure that we found far outweighs the delight we would get from everything else. And so when we compare it with everything else, everything else just doesn't match up. Joy is central to conversion. Jesus said there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there's joy. Um, and then joy is also an important aspect of giving. Have a look at this. Just take a chance to read that. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. This is absolutely astonishing. The Macedonians were in the midst of an extreme trial, but they were overflowing with joy. They were in extreme poverty, but they welled up with rich generosity. And you know, however you look at that verse, you can't remove joy from the equation. Because the equation goes, overflowing joy plus extreme poverty equals rich generosity. Let me ask you a question. How do you think Jesus measures generosity? Do you think that each... Macedonian, each poor Macedonian gave a huge sum of money. They didn't. They were in extreme poverty. So how can Paul describe their giving as generous? Look at this verse that comes later on. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver, not just a giver. So the virtue isn't in the giving, but it's in the joy of the giving. So God values the attitude more than the gift. And that's why the Macedonian's gift was described as being generous, because it came from overflowing joy. So it's an important aspect of conversion. Joy is an important aspect of giving. 
it's also an important aspect of self-denial. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And this passage just blows my mind. Jesus endured unspeakable torture for the sake of joy. It wasn't the suffering that gave him great pleasure and happiness. It was the joy set before him. Can you see that? Jesus knew that by suffering on the cross, he would get to spend an eternity with you. That was the pleasure and the happiness that he was looking forward to. It's unbelievable. Sometimes we need to stop and be overwhelmed by the thought that Jesus enjoys being with us so much that he went through that suffering and that torture. He wasn't delighting in the torture. He was delighting in what it would achieve for the joy set before him. And this is one of those parallel experiences where the circumstances seem to indicate that you cannot enjoy joy. But right in the midst of the suffering, the strength that was keeping Jesus going was the joy, the knowledge that what he was doing was going to achieve something amazing. Another thing that is central is ministry. We heard earlier that Paul would have preferred to die and to be with Christ. And this is not surprising because I think that most of us would have buckled under the kind of life that Paul chose to live for the sake of the gospel. After all, he's in prison at the moment. So the prospects of his life improving are not very good. So it's clear that he's not looking to life to provide him with a great sense of enjoyment. But God had convinced Paul that it was more necessary for him to keep on being alive and serving the church. But notice the goal of his ministry and of his work. He wanted the Philippians to grow and experience joy. And he wanted their boasting in Jesus to flourish, to overflow. Folks, what do we boast about? We boast about things that we enjoy. We, we boast about things that we delight in, that we treasure. And so Paul was making this decision. He was saying, Lord, I'm, I'm happy to submit to your will and to stay alive here in prison because I know that ultimately this is going to be for the growth and the joy of many, many people. And that thought and that reflection caused joy to start rising up in his heart. Isn't that incredible? It is just so awesome. So, brothers and sisters, I hope you can see just how important joy is. It's closely linked to our overarching purpose, which is to make God look great, to glorify Him. And that joy is right there at the heart of conversion. It's at the heart of giving. It's at the heart of self-denial. It's at the heart of ministry. So joy is not optional. But what should we rejoice in? And how should we do it? Well, to begin with, it's impossible to enjoy God without becoming His child. And I just have to say that today. We spent a lot of time last week talking about how we are put right with God and how we're adopted into His family. 
And I can just say that you won't get this experience of enjoying Christ as your all-surpassing treasure unless you've become a child of God. You'll get tastes of it, and I hope that that taste will keep you coming back for more until you're eventually in that place where, like David, you can say, my soul has been satisfied as with the richest of foods. And so come and chat to me afterwards if you are not a member of God's family um, so that you can experience that joy. Next thing, if you want to enjoy God, you need to find a way to experience His presence. Listen to this, Psalm 16, verse 11. It says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. In your presence there is fullness of joy. If you want to enjoy God, you need to find a way to enter into His presence. Now, in Old Testament times, the Israelites experienced God's presence in the temple. So when you're reading the Old Testament, you can see the temple as like a metaphor for a place where you can experience God's presence. And it means that we can learn something about how to experience God's presence from the way in which the ancient Israelites entered the temple. And this is how they were commanded to do it. In Psalm 100 verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. In other words, enter into the presence of God with thanksgiving and come into his presence with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. So here's a simple tip. If you want to begin enjoying God, start by giving thanks. It's imperative for us as Christians to be the most grateful and thankful people around. There is always something to give thanks to God for. And as you start to give thanks, you'll start to stoke up the fires of pleasure and enjoyment in God. As you start to give thanks for all the good things that He's done for you. And then it says here that we should praise His name. How do we do that? Well, remember I've said many times before that God's name is not a label. You know, a Mercedes car, when we, when we say the name Mercedes, it's not simply a label for a car. It actually represents something about the car. It represents the quality, the luxury, the high maintenance costs, uh, the safety. And so when we say the name of God, what we're saying, we're not just merely referring to a label. We're referring to all the qualities that that name represents. And so as, you want, as, you, as you're starting to enjoy God, maybe you, it's, it's been a really tough day at work, you just lie down on the sofa, I do this, and you just start saying thanks to God for a few things. And then you start to praise God for His name. And our Father who is in heaven. Isn't it amazing that we have a Father who is in heaven? What does it mean that He's in heaven? Well, it means that He's all-powerful. He's, he's all-powerful. Wow, that's amazing. He is in control of everything. He knows everything. I've said it before. I mean, he knows the distance from the corner of this lectern to the end of every pine needle up in Inyanga. He knows that stuff. And we start to praise God for what he's like. And we don't only do it individually, but we come together with other people and we declare the name of the Lord. We, do, we praise the name of the Lord together. This, that's what we were doing this morning. We did it at home group last week. We all had lots of different scriptures that we just read, like that one Psalm 121 that I read earlier. I look up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. We're rejoicing in the Lord and what He's like. 
Here are some other scriptures that command us to do this. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. And then Paul says in Philippians, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Obviously, he's written about this before. And he's going to keep on doing it because it's a safeguard to them. In fact, even in this letter, he repeats himself in chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. I found this analogy helpful. This is when, uh, to understand how we rejoice in something. When you get a new possession, like for example a car, you, you savor all sorts of different things about that car. You, you savor the color, the acceleration, the special features, the handling, you know, when you go through the corners. And like as not, you start talking about those qualities to your friends and your family. It's like, hey, wouldn't believe it. I can remember the one time we, we were up at um, Inyanga and Gail's brother came to join us up there and he, this was back in the day when, when Master Kronos were a big deal and he just got a Master Kronos and he couldn't stop talking about it. He's like, well, you wouldn't believe him, how smooth the acceleration is in this car and how it takes the corners. And that's exactly what we're meant to be doing with God. When we're rejoicing in the Lord, we're talking about how amazing He is. We're, we're talking about His qualities but not only that, We're also rejoicing in his works. That's the next thing that we can rejoice in. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy of what your hands have done. If you want to rejoice in the Lord's works, then just spend a bit of time remembering what he's done for you and your family. And then remember what he's done for other people in in the body of Christ. And don't forget to marvel at his creation as well. That's also the work of his hands. And folks, we can do this all the time. I, I particularly enjoy doing it when, when I meet somebody's baby for the first time. A married couple, they've, they've had a baby, and you just, I just find it the most mind-blowing thing. And I just stand there and I just marvel over it, and I'm often talking out aloud because this is part of rejoicing. It's just like, oh, isn't this a beautiful baby? Isn't it wonderful that the two of you were able to partner with God in creating this new life? This is amazing. Look at those little ears. Look at those little eyes. What did you think I was going to say then? (laughs) But we're rejoicing. We're rejoicing in in the, the work of God's hands. It's incredible. So we rejoice in His qualities. We rejoice in His works. It all makes sense. But then the Bible starts blowing our mind. Um, and And the Bible says... Rejoice in your sufferings. Paul wrote to the Romans church. We can understand the first part. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Yeah, of course, that is fantastic. What is our hope? Our hope is that one day, after we die, we will be raised and spend the rest of our life with God. Yes, I can rejoice in that. But then he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So does this mean that he is rejoicing and enjoying the suffering itself? No. It's rejoice in your sufferings, not rejoice for your sufferings. We delight in what the suffering is producing in us. 
so the suffering is producing those good things. Endurance, character, character produces hope. You know, we're not going to hold on to this hope unless we have a strong character. And that's why trials are a good thing. It's because it, it keeps strengthening our character. And God will never allow us to be tested beyond our ability to endure. So he's got this character development plan for all of you that is gradually strengthening your character up for the next trial so that in that next trial you will hold on to your hope. And these are the things that we rejoice in, not for the trial itself, but in what the trial is producing. It was the same for Jesus when he was on the cross. For the joy set before him, not the fact that he was about to be separated from God for an eternity or that his hands and his feet were nailed. No, rejoicing in the joy set before him. God has a plan. He knows where this is headed. And through this, I get to share eternity with all these countless people who are members of my family for the joy set before him. This is what Peter wrote. He wrote, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And remember, this is in the context of the persecution that was started by Nero, an incredibly cruel persecution that spread out through the Roman Empire. It's in the context of that. Those are the kind of trials that these people were experiencing. What did they rejoice in? In all this you greatly rejoice in. And then if you look at the verses beforehand, you'll see what it was that they were rejoicing in. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. There's the first thing that they're rejoicing in. There's many things you can rejoice in. I'm just giving you a sample. But this is one of them. The living hope. How many of you have had a hope turn to dust in your hands? Turn to ashes? There's many different things that we hope for. But we have one hope that, is, that will never be taken away from us. It's a living hope. And that is that on the basis of what Christ did on the cross, we will live forever in eternity with God. And we rejoice in that. So, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. All sorts of things can be taken away from you on this earth, but you have an inheritance which is being kept for you in heaven. It will not perish. It will not spoil. It will not fade. And we glory in this. We delight in this, even in the midst of our troubles. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, next thing we can rejoice in, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So we've got a living hope, we've got an eternal inheritance, and we have a powerful protector. God is on our side. He's strong. Our God is strong in us. He will make sure that we cross the finish line. So in conclusion, folks, don't push joy to the margins of your life. Christians are people who overflow with joy. And at the heart of the fountain of joy is an overwhelming delight in Jesus. And I pray that Jesus would become our all-surpassing delight and treasure. I pray that God would do this work in us. That God would help us. That he would partner with us in this process so that we might be strengthened in our troubles and that God might be most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. The joy of the Lord is our strength, folks.
we need it. Shall we pray? Father God, I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that by the Spirit you would pour out joy into every person in the congregation today. Please come, Holy Spirit, and fill us with joy. Fill us with a, a joy and a satisfaction and a pleasure that is not linked to our circumstances, but that is grounded in eternal truths that can never be changed, things that can never be taken away from us. We want to be the most joyful people on the planet, and I pray that you would do that work with us. We, we promise to work with you, Father God, but we need you so much. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And I pray now for your blessing on every person here. I pray that you would go with them, that every person here would know your protection during the week, that every person would know your provision, and that every person would know an overflowing quantity of joy in their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.